The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. We've been working our way passage by passage through the book of 1 Peter. And today, the next passage we come to is 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the ways of visitation, on the days of visitation. May God bless the reading of his word. Thank you, Jen. Let's pray together. Father, we find it written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so help us to view your word that way this morning, Uh, not merely as an interesting subject for study, or as a helpful resource for various situations, but as our very life. Lord, may we experience it as that through the ministry of your Spirit today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. One of the most well-known characters from Marvel comic books and later from the Marvel movies is the Hulk. Now, I have to admit that I'm certainly no expert on the Hulk, but from what I understand, there was a scientist named Bruce Banner who was accidentally exposed to high levels of gamma radiation and, as a result, now has an alter ego of sorts known as the Hulk, a huge green monster with bulging muscles and a fierce temper. Basically, the way it works is that whenever Bruce Banner gets angry or particularly upset, he turns into the Hulk. And he does so whether he wants to or not. Like, even if he doesn't want to turn into the Hulk, it doesn't matter. The Hulk just kind of takes over and goes on a rampage. And once that happens, it's virtually impossible to stop it. And as I think about the Hulk... I can't help but notice certain similarities between the way things work in real life within our own hearts. The Bible teaches that there is a beast of sorts that lives within every human being. Like ever since humanity's rebellion against God in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 an event that theologians call the fall, every one of us is born with a heart that's inclined towards sin and a a nature that is thoroughly rebellious. You know, a lot of people uh, think that we enter this world in a basically neutral state and are then influenced in either good or bad directions by things outside of us. 
And yet the Bible teaches that even though there are certainly many things that do influence us from the outside, there's something very significant that influences us from the inside. That is our sinful nature. It's something we all possess even from the moment we enter this world. You know, that's why you don't have to teach your children how to lie or steal or manipulate. They already do all those things very well on their own without any training because of this this sinful nature that we all possess. And it stays with us as well. Even though we often learn to conceal our sinful nature and express our sinful desires in more socially acceptable ways, there's still this this monster of sorts living within us that's thoroughly corrupt and at times capable even of horrendous things. So much like the Hulk, the sinful nature just kind of takes over and gives us a desire for sin that overrides all other desires. Now, when someone becomes a Christian, things change radically. First of all, through Jesus, we are forgiven of our sins and declared righteous in God's sight. That's because Jesus took the penalty for our sins when he died on the cross. Like, he endured the punishment that we deserved. As a result, whenever we put our trust in Jesus and look to him to be our savior, we experience full forgiveness of every sin we've ever committed or ever will commit. Yet that's not all, because in addition to forgiving our sins, Jesus also transforms our hearts. The Bible describes it as him removing our old sinful heart and replacing it with a new godly heart. As a result, we're now a new person with new desires, new priorities, and a totally new perspective on life. Sin is no longer dominant within us. Instead, we're now led not by sin, but by the Holy Spirit. However, that being said, Anyone who's been a Christian for virtually any length of time knows from their own personal experience that that's unfortunately not all there is to it. Because even as Christians, we still have sinful desires at times that lead us to commit sins. The sinful nature is no longer dominant, but it's still there to some degree. Uh, I like to call it the ghost of our old self because the Bible says that our old self is dead. To use a biblical phrase, it was crucified with Christ. And yet, somehow, the ghost of our old sinful nature still lingers within our hearts. And turning our attention now to our main passage of 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, That's the reality we see Peter addressing here. Looking first at verse 11, he writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Now, there are several things in that verse that require explanation. But consider first that phrase, the passions of the flesh. 
in this context, the flesh is synonymous with the sinful nature uh, that we've been talking about. According to Peter, the passions or desires of our old sinful self are still a very real force to be reckoned with. Even though we're Christians and Jesus has changed our hearts in a very radical way, we still battle these passions of the flesh. And the main idea Peter's seeking to communicate in, in these verses is that God's people should live out their heavenly identity by abstaining from fleshly passions and keeping their conduct honorable. If you're taking notes, feel free to write that down as the main idea. Again, God's people should live out their heavenly identity by abstaining from fleshly passions and keeping their conduct honorable. Essentially, they need to pursue holiness. And there are three reasons Peter gives his readers for why they need to do this. We'll look at these one by one. The first is related to their identity. The second is is related to their souls, and the third is related to their witness. So first, their identity. Uh, Peter reminds us, readers, in verse 11, that they need to abstain from the passions of the flesh because of their identity as sojourners and exiles. And that's true of every Christian. Every Christian is a sojourner and exile in the sense that we live in a land that's not our home. We're just passing through this world on our way to heaven. That's where we belong and where our true home is. As the Apostle Paul reminds us in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in, you guys know it, heaven. (laughs) And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So even though most of us in this room are, might in some sense be considered to be citizens of the United States or whatever other country we're from, our truest and highest citizenship isn't any earthly citizenship, but rather a heavenly citizenship. Like we are first and foremost citizens of heaven. In addition to that, the term Exiles here is a reference to Israel being exiled in the Old Testament. Peter's deliberately using the imagery of Israel's exile in the Old Testament to speak of the present condition of Christians in the New Testament. According to Peter, just like the Israelites were in exile for a period of time in Babylon, those of us who are Christians are likewise in a kind of exile. We're citizens of heaven And yet here we are in this present world. So because our ultimate citizenship is in heaven, here's the upshot. We're called to live heavenly lives. So that's Peter's point in verse 11. The way we live in this present world should reflect our identity as citizens of the next You know, when someone from the United States travels to another country, especially a non-Western country, it's usually pretty obvious that they're not from whatever country uh, they're visiting. Like if someone from the United States were to visit Thailand, let's say, I'm pretty sure all the people 
from Thailand are going to know pretty much immediately that that person is not from their country. That's because the person who's traveling dresses differently, uh, speaks a different language, and adheres to different cultural customs, even during their visit to Thailand. In a similar manner, those of us who are Christians aren't from this world, but are instead citizens of heaven. Therefore, our lives need to be patterned around the culture and customs of heaven rather than the culture and customs of this fallen world. So that means, for example, we're called to pursue integrity in the midst of a culture where deception is rampant. We're called to pursue purity in the midst of a culture that seems to have forgotten how to blush. We're called to pursue sacrificial love in the midst of a culture where people are typically all about themselves. In a word, we're called to be distinct from the world around us. So that's one reason Peter tells his readers to abstain from the passions of the flesh. It's because of their identity. In addition, he also tells them to do so for the sake of their souls. Still looking at verse 11, Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. That means, whether we like it or not, we're in the midst of a war. Kind of like in World War II, when Japan attacked the United States at Pearl Harbor. Up until then, the United States was trying very hard not to get involved in the war that had engulfed most of the rest of the world. But when we were attacked on American soil, we really had no choice in the matter, right? We were effectively at war, whether we liked it or not. There was really no use denying it. Instead, the only real option was to start fighting back with as many resources as we could mobilize. Similarly, as Christians, whether we like it or not, we're in a war with the passions of the flesh. And these sinful passions won't be satisfied until they've conquered us and destroyed us completely. That's what sin is out to do. It won't accept a partial victory or make a treaty with us once it's gained a little bit of territory. Instead, it's intent on eventually destroying us. Of course, it doesn't do this all at once. It's always a process, right? Kind of like cancer. Might start in just one part of the body, but spreads more and more to other parts of the body until it eventually kills the person. It eventually brings death. So even though sin might start small, don't let it fool you. Sin inevitably grows and spreads and eventually brings death. James 1, 14 and 15 describes the process. It says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, 
brings forth death. So the process starts with temptation and ends with death. In addition, James 5, 19 and 20 says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Again, the inevitable result of sinful wandering is nothing less than death. The great Puritan theologian John Owen put it this way. Sin always aims at the utmost. Every time it rises up to tempt or entice, if it's allowed to have its own course, it would go to the utmost sin in that kind. Every unclean thought or glance would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression. Every thought of unbelief would be atheism if allowed to grow. Every sinful desire, if it has its way, would come to the height of villainy. It is like the grave that is never satisfied. Just as relevant today as it was 400 years ago when John Owen wrote that. And so hopefully we can all take Owen's warning to heart. Sin wants to kill us and won't be satisfied until it does. And because the sinful nature within us, or the ghost of it anyway, never rests, neither can we. As John Owen also said very famously, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And finally, Peter urges his readers to pursue holiness not only in light of their identity and not only for the sake of their souls, but also, number three, for the sake of their witness. Moving forward in our main passage, Peter tells his readers in verse 12, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, in most contexts, the word Gentiles is an ethnic designation that refers to anyone who isn't Jewish. So anyone who's not a Jew is, by definition, a Gentile. Yet in this context, the word Gentile actually isn't an ethnic designation, but a spiritual one. It refers to those who aren't Christians. Uh, This is consistent with the numerous comparisons Peter's been making in his letter so far, between Israel in the Old Testament and Christians in the New Testament. So Peter tells his Christian readers as a kind of new Israel to keep their conduct among the Gentiles, or non-Christians, honorable. And the result, Peter says, is that even though they might still speak against you as evildoers, they may nevertheless see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So Peter acknowledges that despite our best efforts to conduct ourselves in an honorable way in society, there will still be some who accuse us of doing evil. And we can certainly see that today, can't we? For example, how often have you 
heard it said that Christians are bigots for believing that God's plan for human flourishing calls for heterosexual marriage rather than any kind of homosexual relationship. You know, no matter how much we try to demonstrate love and care for those living an LGBT lifestyle, we're still accused of bigotry simply for believing what the Bible says about God's plan for human relationships. Or consider the issue of abortion, right? How many times have you heard it said, or at least implied, that those who support pro-life legislation are on a malicious campaign to limit women's rights or deny women access to health care? So not a whole lot has changed, really, in the past 2,000 years. Uh, Even our efforts at goodness and and righteousness and, and pursuing these good things in society are often twisted around and made out to be acts not of good, but acts of evil. So no matter what we do, there will still always be some who find a way to, in Peter's words, speak against us as evildoers. And by the way, the reason they do this, first of all, is quite simply because they love sin and don't want anything to keep them from sinning. Not only that, they also feel a measure of guilt because, and this is just biblical teaching from John 3 and from Romans 1, God has given them a conscience, the Bible says, and they don't want anything to stir their conscience and remind them of their guilt. John 3 talks about how darkness does not want to come into the light because its deeds will be exposed, it says. And so they would rather speak against those of us who are Christians as evildoers so that they can dismiss what we say and not be confronted with their own guilt. However, we do find some encouragement in verse 12, actually significant encouragement. If we try to keep our conduct among non-Christians honorable, even the very people who speak against us as evildoers will nevertheless see our good deeds. They won't be able to help but to take notice of the ways in which we demonstrate genuine love and care for the people around us. As a result, some of them will, as Peter says, glorify God. On the day of visitation. Now, there's some debate about what the day of visitation refers to. It could refer to the day when God visits people, uh, these non Christians, with salvation. That is the day of their conversion when they become Christians. Or it could refer to the day when Jesus returns, with the implication that these Uh, people have already become Christians at some point prior to that day and are therefore in a position to glorify God on that day of visitation. Yet regardless of how we interpret that phrase, we're basically led to the same conclusion. The good deeds in which Christians engage eventually prove persuasive, even among many of those who at one time, accused us of being evildoers. As a result, many of these non-Christians eventually become Christians. 
and glorify God for their salvation. It's also worth noting that in saying this, Peter seems to be drawing from what Jesus said in Matthew 5.16 when he told his disciples, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Again, it's our good works that prove persuasive among those who are far from God and that eventually lead them to give glory to God as Christians. Also, in both of these verses, Matthew and and Peter, notice the emphasis on Christians not only avoiding various sins, but also actually engaging in good works. You see that? In the words of Jesus, we see him talking about non-Christians seeing our good works, and Peter speaks of them seeing our good deeds. This is a great reminder that living a holy life isn't just about what we don't do, but is also very much about what we do do. (laughs) In Peter's words, it's not just about us abstaining from the passions of the flesh, but it's also about us actually devoting ourselves to good works or good deeds. And so, what would that look like? Well, you know, for example, don't just oppose abortion. Also do whatever you can to help women in positions of vulnerability. Don't just maintain that an LGBT lifestyle is wrong. Consider inviting a gay couple over to your house for dinner. And of course, the list is almost endless of other ways that we can do good and demonstrate love toward the people around us. And perhaps a a good goal would be for us to become more known in society for the good things that we do than we are for the bad things that we don't do. And according to Peter, all of this gives us a platform for sharing the gospel and gives us credibility in doing so. You know, there are plenty of things that differ from one generation to the next and vary from one culture to the next. But one thing that seems to remain the same universally is that the power of our gospel witness is based in large part on the distinctiveness of our lives. And I know that's certainly been my experience personally, um, just thinking through the people uh, who, just over the years, who have, have come to faith through my gospel witness, or at least through a series of events that involved my gospel witness. I can't think of a single one of them who didn't later tell me that at least part of the reason that they considered the gospel and they turned to Christ was because they saw something in my life that made an impression on them and that they found desirable. And, uh, you know, let's be clear. Unfortunately, I'm far from perfect, right? I have said things and done things numerous times that have unfortunately not been a good gospel witness at all. But praise God that he still uses us 
Even with all our failures and shortcomings and insufficiencies, he still uses us to do his kingdom work even as we uh, stumble and yet as we strive at the same time to live a life that pleases him. So those are the three reasons Peter gives for encouraging his readers to pursue holiness. He, he encourages them to do so in light of their identity, for the sake of their souls, and for the sake of their gospel witness. And you know, hopefully this is an encouragement for us as well, to abstain from the passions of the flesh and to ultimately be victorious over the sins that are a frequent struggle for us. Yet as we seek to do this, it can also be helpful to understand some principles, practical principles, for obtaining this victory. So with a portion of the time that we have left, I'd like to very briefly just go over a few of those principles with you, five of them uh, to be exact, five principles for obtaining victory over sin. So hopefully uh, these will help us actually carry out Peter's exhortation in our main passage. First, walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians 5.16, Paul writes, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul also writes in Romans 8.13 that it's by the Spirit that we put to death the sinful deeds of the body. If we attempt to obtain victory over sin in our own strength and through our own abilities, we're going to fail time after time. And any apparent success we do manage to obtain will be very temporary and superficial. In fact, as John MacArthur insightfully observes, quote, trying to kill sin and behave morally through personal strength and efforts is the foundation of all false religion in the world, end quote. So trying to overcome sin in our own strength isn't just unwise. It's, if you get right down to it, it's unchristian. So in our fight against sin, the first thing for us to remember is that it's only by the Holy Spirit's power that any true victory is possible. And walking in the Spirit's power involves recognizing that reality and being continually conscious of it as we engage in this epic battle. In addition, a second principle is to flee from temptation. Get as far away from it as you possibly can. Maintaining any unnecessary proximity to temptation is a lot like playing with fire. I mean, it's just a matter of time before you get burned, and perhaps badly burned. And so flee from temptation, just like Joseph, for example, fled from Potiphar's wife in Genesis 39 when she tried to seduce him. You know, we saw that as we journeyed through the book of Genesis last year. This also involves proactively removing certain things from our lives if they've been temptations for us in the past. In Matthew 5, 29 and 30, Jesus even suggests that we gouge out our eyes and cut off our hands if necessary in order to avoid anything that would cause us to sin. Now, of course, he's using hyperbole there, and he's not literally suggesting that we take a knife and you know, go to work on ourselves. 
Yet the radical nature of his teaching still stands. So perhaps for Christians today, that might look like, I don't know, getting rid of your smartphone and getting a flip phone if pornography is a frequent struggle for you. I know that sounds radical, but Jesus calls us right to be radical. And following Jesus' teaching would certainly also include lesser measures that really aren't even all that radical, such as someone who's tempted to abuse alcohol, like not keeping alcohol in their fridge, or a couple who's dating, just not spending time together alone in places where bad things can happen. And that leaves us right into the third principle, which is to be ruthless in slaying sin. Don't give it a single inch. Don't show it any mercy. In just a few moments ago, I referenced Romans 8.13, which talks about putting to death the sinful deeds of the body. It doesn't say to weaken sin or injure sin or simply gain an advantage over sin. It says to put sin to death. Don't compromise. Don't hesitate. Go to whatever measures are necessary to kill sin before it kills you. And then a fourth principle is to feed godly desires within your heart. It's simply a truth of nature that the more you feed something, the stronger it grows. Like if you have I don't know, cattle, let's say, and you want your cattle to uh, grow bigger and stronger. Well, you know, I'm no expert on cattle here, but I can guarantee you that you are going to want to make sure they have plenty of food, right? I, I do know that. Conversely, if an animal is starved, it becomes weaker. Feeding something makes it stronger, while starving something makes it weaker. So if we want to defeat the sin in our lives, then we need to starve our old sinful nature and feed our new godly nature. And uh, you can probably imagine the kinds of things that feeding that new godly nature involves. Things we talk about a lot, like communing with God in prayer and immersing ourselves in the Bible and spending time with like-minded Christians who are going to pursue or going to encourage us in the faith. And finally, a fifth principle is to cultivate affections for Jesus. Ultimately, the way we overcome sinful desires isn't simply what many people try to do, which is to just grit their teeth and try really hard. But rather, it's by gazing upon the glory of Jesus and allowing ourselves to be captivated by him. See, the way it works is that as our affections for Jesus are stirred, we come to delight in him above everything else and become so full of joy in him that sin just no longer seems appealing. You know, when I'm full of a nice like, steak dinner, 
I'm no longer tempted to snack on stale potato chips. And when we're full of joy and delight in Christ, then we're not tempted to fall into sin. So all sin can ultimately be traced back to a failure to delight in Christ. Like That's why we commit sins. Like whenever we commit a sin, it's because in that moment, we're not delighting in Christ. Like we're sinning because we're empty. And so if you want to overcome sin, set your mind on Christ. Direct your gaze toward Christ. See him on the cross demonstrating his love for you. And just let yourself be captivated by what he's done. And so those are five principles that I, I hope you, found, um, you find as helpful as I do. And yet even as we try to live out these principles, there will inevitably be times when we stumble and fall. That's just an unfortunate part of living uh, on this side of heaven. And so how should we respond when we stumble and fall? What should we do? Should we wallow in our feelings of guilt or try to hide ourselves from God in shame? Or allow ourselves to sink down into the swamp of discouragement and despondency? Absolutely not. That's exactly, these things are exactly what Satan would have us do, but they're exactly what we mustn't do. Instead, we need to run straight to Jesus. Even after we've strayed from him, and fallen away from him for what feels like the thousandth time, the arms of Jesus are still just wide open for us. He's ready and willing to receive us back to himself, no matter how badly we've fallen or how frequently we've failed. A Puritan author named Richard Sibbs famously said, that there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. And to paraphrase, another Puritan named Jeremiah Burroughs says, didn't Jesus begin to love you before you loved him? And will he not continue now? Didn't he love you when you were his enemy? and were brazenly rebelling against him without any remorse, and were thoroughly sinful to the core of your being. So will he not love you even more now that you've been redeemed and made new? Will he not love you even more as a saint than he ever did as a sinner? End quote. So whenever you stumble and fall, go immediately to Jesus. Don't let anything keep you away from him. As John writes in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, uh, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. It's the goal. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate 
with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So whenever we sin, we have an advocate, someone who's on our side and in our corner and who truly has our best interests at heart. His name is Jesus. And the reason Jesus is able to serve so effectively as our advocate is because, as John says, he's the propitiation for our sins. It's a fancy theological word. It just means that Jesus is the sacrifice that satisfies God the Father's justice and appeases his wrath against our sins. And so whenever we stumble and fall, friends, the great comfort we have, and indeed the foundation of all true comfort, is looking to Jesus, our wonderful advocate, who is the propitiation for our sins. And as we've said, it's important to do that, not only in the immediate aftermath of our sins, but also as, I guess you could say, as a preventative measure to keep us from sinning in the first place. Remember, it's as we look upon Jesus and become ever more captivated by him that sin loses its appeal. 